You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 27th day of February 2011. I'd like to welcome all of the listeners back to the Corbett Report and invite them all, as always, to check into my website, CorbettReport.com, where you can find previous episodes of this podcast, as well as articles, interviews, and videos created and conducted by myself in the past, and links to other websites that the Corbett Report supports and that provide support to the Corbett Report. And to all of those listeners who may be listening into the podcast for the first time because they heard me on the Alex Jones show last week, I'd like to welcome you to the podcast and urge you to look into some of the previous reports that I've done and previous work. And I'd also like to let everyone know that I will uh, apparently, according to the latest information I have, be guest hosting the Alex Jones show or at least one hour thereof tomorrow uh, for myself and for uh, you if you're listening to this on Sunday the 27th. That would be Monday, February 28th, and I will apparently be hosting or co-hosting part of the program from 12 noon central time to 1 p.m. central time. So if you're listening in, that would be great. And also, of course, I will be feeding out the audio and video of that once it's done and putting it up on the Corbett Report homepage so you can find it there. But at any rate, it's not uh, done yet, so we won't count those uh, chickens before they've hatched. But I look forward to doing that, and I hope that uh, you look forward to hearing it. At any rate, I guess today I would like to say that to all of those people who have emailed uh, over the past few days because they found the Corbett Report website through the Alex Jones Show, I genuinely appreciate the emails and the feedback, and I try to respond when, as, and if possible, but even though the normal amount of emails I usually get on a weekly basis are too much for me to physically respond to all of them, the amount of emails I've received over the last few days is absolutely overwhelming, so there's no possible way I could even think of responding to all of the information that's been sent in. And to all those people who have sent in links to their websites, or links to videos they've created, or links to books that they've recently written, and all of the other people who have introduced me to themselves and their information over the last few days, I thank you wholeheartedly for that information and that feedback, and I try to look into everything that comes in, but there is no possible way I could humanly respond to it all, let alone actually feature everyone in some way on the podcast or in my work. So although I do genuinely appreciate it and I do ask for people to write in with their information, there is no way I can get to everyone, even those people who I think do have interesting information to present. So I hope you do not take it as a personal offense if I don't respond to you or don't get to you, but I just can't do it all myself and I am just a regular guy working a regular 9 to 5 job who does this website in his free time. So I'm afraid I cannot be uh, the media outlet that will broadcast everything to everyone. So once again, take this as a note that I do not in any way, shape or form say that people should only get their news from the Corbett Report. Of course, you need to get news from numerous sources and consider numerous different angles on all of the things that we report on here. And on that note, and with all those provisos in mind, let's just get straight into today's episode. Welcome to episode 177 of the Corbett Report podcast, It's the Sun, Stupid. Quote, Is our climate changing? The succession of temperate summers and open winters through several years, culminating last winter in the almost total failure of the ice crop throughout the valley of the Hudson, 
makes the question pertinent. The older inhabitants tell us that the winters are not as cold now as when they were young, and we have all observed a marked diminution of the average cold even in the last decade. End quote. The New York Times, June 23, 1890. Quote, America is believed by Weather Bureau scientists to be on the verge of a change of climate, with a return to increasing rains and deeper snows and the colder winters of Grandfather's Day. End quote. Associated Press, December 15, 1934. Quote, Greenland's polar climate has moderated so consistently that communities of hunters have evolved into fishing villages. Sea mammals, vanishing from the west coast, have been replaced by codfish and other fish species in the area's southern waters. End quote. New York Times, August 29, 1954. Quote, After a week of discussions on the causes of climate change, an assembly of specialists from several continents seem to have reached unanimous agreement on only one point. It is getting colder. End quote. New York Times, January 30th, 1961. Quote, Colonel Bernd Balchen, polar explorer and flyer, is circulating a paper among polar specialists proposing that the Arctic pack ice is thinning and that the ocean at the North Pole may become an open sea within a decade or two. End quote. New York Times, February 20th, 1969. Quote, the United States and the Soviet Union are mounting large-scale investigations to determine why the Arctic climate is becoming more frigid, why parts of the Arctic sea ice have recently become ominously thicker, and whether the extent of that ice cover contributes to the onset of ice ages. End quote. New York Times, July 18th, 1970. Quote, a poll of climate specialists in seven countries has found a consensus that there will be no catastrophic changes in the climate by the end of the century. But the specialists were almost equally divided on whether there would be a warming, a cooling, or no change at all. End quote. New York Times, February 18th, 1978. Quote, New York will probably be like Florida 15 years from now. End quote. St. Louis Post-Dispatch, September 17th, 1989. Quote, Scientists are warning that some of the Himalayan glaciers could vanish within 10 years because of global warming. A buildup of greenhouse gases is blamed for the meltdown, which could lead to drought and flooding in the region, affecting millions of people. End quote. The Birmingham Post, July 26, 1999. Etc., etc., etc. For those who are interested in some of the dozens and dozens and dozens of more examples of such very interesting reports and very definite pronouncements on the future of the world's climate from various times over the past 150 years, from various respected institutions and respected newspapers like the New York Times, I'll throw in a number of links to various places where you can get ample amounts of such very interesting and very definitive statements on the climate, including some from examiner.com, what's up with that.com, and Stephen Goddard's uh, blog. But suffice it to say, for those who have been keeping track over the past 150 years, there have been an awful lot of very definitive pronouncements from very authoritative scientists, institutions, and studies that show precisely that we are heading into a period of great global warming. Or perhaps global cooling, or maybe it's neither. 
Nevertheless, as anyone who has not been living under a rock for at least the last 20 years is undoubtedly aware, there has been quite a push over the last few decades to indoctrinate the public into the religion of anthropogenic global warming caused by carbon dioxide. And to people who have listened to the Corbett Report in the past, they will have heard some of the many reasons that this is not necessarily an established science and that the life-giving carbon dioxide is in fact actually essential to life on Earth and is not in any way a vile poison that needs to be eliminated, sequestered, or especially taxed or capped and trade by Al Gore and the well-connected cronies of the Chicago Climate Exchange and other hopefully soon-to-be-defunct ideas by the rich banking oligarchy who stands to make billions upon billions of dollars by promoting this fad science. And yes, I use the term science loosely there. But as I say, the Corbett Report has spent ample time in various podcast episodes in the past going over the reasons that carbon dioxide is not driving our climate and demonstrating that man's contribution to carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is not the single and sole determinant of the temperature on the planet Earth. But if it isn't carbon dioxide, then what is it? Is it possibly that giant, gaseous, fiery ball of hydrogen in the sky whose very heart is driven by a thermonuclear reaction of hydrogen conversion into helium that gives off 384.6 yottawatts of energy every second, and whose core is 13.6 million Kelvin? Could it possibly be that that's driving temperatures not only on Earth but throughout the solar system? Or is that just a ridiculous conspiracy theory? Well, in order to start taking a look at that outrageous idea that perhaps it is the sun that is in fact the single most important determinant of our climate, let's take a look at the very obvious and admitted truths that it is indeed the sun that determines our climate, that is hidden out in plain sight in the open in such a way that everyone understands it, but no one seems to actually take it into account when talking about the unbelievable, unprecedented anthropogenic global warming hypothesis. And in order to start doing that, we're going to take a listen to a video from firstscience.tv about the moon's effect on the Earth's rotational axis and how that affects the Earth's climate. If we spun on a vertical axis, like the planet Mercury, seasons would not exist. Everywhere would receive 12 hours of light and 12 hours of darkness. The poles would be entombed in an eternal freezing twilight, while the equator would bake in endless heat. But the moon does more than merely produce this tilt. It also maintains it. The strong gravitational pull of our young moon acts as a global gyroscope stabilizing the Earth's axis. Astrobiologist Lynn Rothschild explains the reason we have this obliquity that holds steady is because the moon helps to stabilize the obliquity of the Earth. If we had no moon, we would end up with what the astronomers call a chaotic obliquity. We'd have quite a big shift and fairly low time scales. Without our global stabilizer, our axis could vary between zero and 90 degrees. This would alter the distribution of sunlight across the surface of the planet 
devastating our finely balanced weather systems. Climate patterns would go berserk. The tropics could find themselves frozen under ice. And Antarctica transformed into a vast desert. But luckily, the moon saves us from such disasters and allows life to exist. It turns out that it may have had a really profound influence on how life has originated and, and evolved on the Earth. In fact, you might almost be able to argue that we wouldn't be here today filming this if the moon weren't up in the sky. So the moon helps to stabilize the obliquity of the Earth relative to the sun, which creates the seasons that we all know. And if you really parse through that, you'll see that the real bottom and base of that whole relationship is the sun and the angle that the sun is in relation to the earth and that's exactly what drives our seasons in fact that's what makes our seasons what they are because it's such an obvious and such a basic point to point out that it doesn't really need to be pointed out we all know and understand that when the sun is weak and low in the sky it's winter and it's cold and when it's high in the sky and it burns brightly all day long that's the summer and that's the time when it's warm and again that's just so basic so grade school science that we don't really need to be understood it and because it's so taken for granted we tend to forget all about it when we start talking about the issue of climate change well, the sun isn't changing, so how could it possibly affect climate change? Well, of course, the sun is constantly changing. It is not a stable state system, and neither is the sun-earth relationship. It is not stable either. It's also changing all the time, and there are many changes both in the earth's orbit and in the way that the sun and the earth move together. So let's start examining some of that and see if there might possibly be a connection. And the first thing that we might want to examine is the idea of ice ages. There are periods of massive climactic change, glacial expansion, polar ice sheets expanding onto the continents, all of this incredible change that are called ice ages. And we know that there is also a cycle behind these, and it operates broadly in 100,000-year cycles of glacials and interglacials. And we find ourselves in the midst of an interglacial that's heading back into a glacial period. And although it is currently warming, as we obviously come out of a glacial period, the last ice age, Unfortunately, we will be heading back into one, and that's bad because, of course, it's much harder for life to survive, especially mammalian life that really does depend on warm temperatures. So, although we have enjoyed a relatively nice period of warmth on the Earth, it seems that the cycle is heading back to eventually towards cooling. But, of course, there's lots of fluctuations that happen within that 100,000-year cycle. But, first of all, we have to at least determine what on Earth is this cycle? Why on Earth is there this 100,000-year period of glacial-interglacial oscillation? What could possibly be driving that? Oh, I see. Maybe, maybe it has something to do with the sun. Well, let's start examining some of the ways that the sun might be driving some of those big, big, big scale uh, changes in our climate. And in order to do that, we'll turn to a clip now from an interview that I conducted recently with Dr. Tim Ball, regular CorbettReport.com guest, retired professor of climatology at the University of Winnipeg, and someone who has a voluminous understanding of the history of science and the philosophy of science, so someone who I greatly enjoy talking to on these subjects. And recently we had the chance to talk about the sun and the various ways in which the sun drives the Earth's uh, climate. 
So we examined a couple of different aspects of that, and we're going to take a listen right now to uh, a part of the conversation where we talk about the ways in which the Sun-Earth relationship and the orbit of the Earth around the Sun and the changes in the Earth's orbit around the Sun actually affects the climate on Earth and drives these big-scale cycles uh, that we know of the glacial-interglacial oscillations. So right now, let's take a listen to that clip from my conversation with Dr. Tim Ball. People obviously understand the, the, the seasons and how the sun is in different par parts of the sky during the seasons, but uh, perhaps people don't really understand the larger uh, cycles that are going on with the orbit of the Earth around the sun and how that changes over time. Well, it, yes, and, and this is the thing that's so um, uh, fascinating about studying anything in, in, in the, the natural world, because on the surface, it seems simple, or people simply, because they live in it every day, they take it for granted. But when you challenge them with a question that appears so simple, and they realize they, 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 don't, they don't understand at all. For example, why is the sky blue? There's very few people that can answer that question. And if you go to other, other planets, um, the, the sky is uh, slightly pink. And, and uh, how does that happen? So even simple questions like that, uh, which you just you go out and say, well, the sky is blue. That's the way it is. And, well, why is that? What's causing that? And, uh, of course, it's a, it's a function of the sunlight hitting particles in the atmosphere and, and uh, scattering them in a process called Rayleigh scattering. But even that, you see, gets quite complicated very quickly. And um, it's that part of the problem that these people have been able to fool the world about the climate issue, uh, that, that people um, think they understand things and they see things and they just take them for granted. And, um, but but the, the actual answers and explanations get pretty complicated pretty quickly. And uh, so what you, when you mention that the angle of the sun, um, that's part of uh, three major mechanisms that is still being taught incorrectly in some uh, parts of the world, some school systems. And, and that uh, it is related to three motions of the sun or the sun's relationship to the earth. And these are the orbit of the earth around the sun. And just to illustrate the problem, a few years ago in Europe, they did a survey and they found that, the, I believe the figure was 17% of the population uh, still believe that the sun goes around the earth, not the other way around. And um, there, there's the difficulty. Uh, if you, in other words, they still haven't uh, accepted the Copernican uh, idea uh, that the, uh, the earth orbits the sun. And the reason is because it's, it's very difficult to prove that the earth goes around the sun. And it, even though Copernicus proclaimed it uh, 400 years ago or more, it wasn't proved until late into the 19th century. And, uh, and of course, you see, it's like, with, like we're talking with this, the blue sky. All of the evidence suggests otherwise. You get up in the morning and you go out and the sun's over here and then during the day it moves across the sky. You're saying, well, I'm standing here. I haven't moved. It, it, and then you say, well, but the Earth is rotating around the sun and it's spinning around at, at a tremendous rate. 
um, you know, 1,000 miles an hour. Oh, hang on a minute. That, I'm not moving. What are you telling me? So it, it's understandable that people um, are, are easily fooled or don't understand or don't believe. And uh, so that's where the problems begin. And um, the motions of the, or the, the center's relationships uh, are generally taught and in, in, in were up until, oh, 1990 almost. I remember uh, going to conferences where the idea that uh, changes in the Sun-Earth relationship were simply uh, rejected at scientific conferences. And I remember going to a conference, and it was 19, 1989 specifically, I remember in Ottawa, and a fellow got up and, and he... Uh, quoted the Milankovitch effect, and we'll talk about that, but he quoted the Milankovitch effect and nobody challenged it. And I realized at that point that what Milankovitch had been working on since 1930, and which other people had been working on, people like uh, Kroll, uh, a Scottish uh, scientist, was working on 150 years ago, that the uh, orbit of the Earth around the Sun changes from uh, almost circular, as it is now, to an extreme ellipse, as it was 22,000 years ago. But we're still teaching that it's a virtually unchanging ellipse. But we've known, as I said scientifically, that that's wrong for 150 years. Now, that needs some explanation, and we'll get to that in a minute. So you've got the orbit of the Earth changing, and um, it's referred to scientifically as the orbital eccentricity. It's caused primarily by the gravitational pull of the planet Jupiter. Now, Jupiter is such a massive planet with such a, an influence in terms of gravity on the Earth that it distorts the orbit of the Earth and it makes it change from this almost circular to extreme ellipse. Um, and it goes from almost circular to extreme ellipse and back again, in other words, the complete cycle, in about 90 to 95,000 years. Now, that doesn't sound like much, but what it means is that every single year, the orbit of the Earth around the Sun is slightly different. The distance of the Earth from the Sun is slightly different. And of course, the distance you are from the fire determines the amount of heat energy that you're gonna get from that fire. So that orbital change alone becomes a very significant factor. And it's reasonably certain that this changing orbit explains the approximately 100,000 year uh, ice age uh, cycles that, that occur. And we can talk about that a bit later on. Now, the, the other thing is that the uh, textbooks still, for the most part, teach that the tilt of the Earth is 23 and a half degrees. Now the tilt, um, that 23 and a half degree angle is, if you think about the Earth going around the sun, that forms a plane, a, a surface. The tilt is to that plane. And so it, again, it's a very fancy uh, title, or name for it, it's called the obliquity of the ecliptic. And um, it's given out as 23 and a half degrees, it isn't actually, it's, it's about 23 degrees, 36 minutes, and so many seconds. But that tilt is constantly changing. And um, now I'm not talking about the wobble. Uh, 
the wobble is, is something different again. But the tilt is changing, and it changes from a minimum of 21.8 to a maximum of 24.4 degrees. Now, what's the significance of that? Well, as the tilt of the Earth changes, of course, that's what creates the seasons. And uh, it also uh, it is what creates those lines on the Earth that everybody's familiar with, the Tropic of Cancer and the Tropic of Capricorn, and the Arctic Circle and the Antarctic Circle. So, for example, the, uh, the sun's rays um, at the equinox, uh, the sun's rays are directly over the equator, vertical to the equator, at noon on the equinox, so that's twice a year. But as the, as the tilt and the orbit of the Earth changes, the, the, the latitude at which the sun's rays are vertical moves north to the Tropic of Cancer and then south to the Tropic of Capricorn. So the amount of heat energy going into each of the hemispheres changes, and that, of course, creates the seasons. Now, the Arctic Circle and the Antarctic Circle are the lines at which the sun's rays touch the Earth tangentially. And, of course, towards the pole from those lines, you get uh, the seasons are six months in length, of six hour, six, uh, where you've got 24 hours of, of light and 24 hours a day in the extreme seasons. And so that tilt then becomes enormously important in the distribution of the heat energy around the Earth. And the angle of the sun striking a surface, which the Greeks uh, were familiar with, with their word climate, um, is called the angle of incidence. And of course, the more vertical or more directly the rays hit the surface, the more heat is imparted to that surface. Now, people are familiar with that because they've all played with uh, magnifying glasses. And they know that if you hold the magnifying glass at, at exact right angles to the sun's rays, you could concentrate the heat of the sun uh, to set things on fire. But if the angle of the, the magnifying glass is anything but at right angles uh, to the sun's rays, it, the heat is dissipated. And that's exactly the same idea. So as the angle of the incidence of the sun on the Earth's surface changes, the amount of heat imparted to the surface changes, and that creates temperature change. So those are two major changes in the sun's orbit and tilt that have incredible impact upon the, um, the, the amount of heat energy and therefore the uh, varying temperature uh, of the sun. Now, people are familiar with it, as I said, on a seasonal basis. What they're not familiar with is that that is constantly changing. And, of course, over long times, or even short, relatively short times, that affects the climate of the Earth and causes the temperature of the Earth to rise and fall in, in pretty regular cycles. Once again, regular CorbettReport.com guest, Dr. Tim Ball. And I would, of course, encourage listeners to go to CorbettReport.com to download the entire interview to listen to all of what we talked about there, because it continued as a very fascinating conversation talking about the Milankovitch cycles and other such very interesting ways in which the Sun-Earth relationship is affected over time and changes the Earth's climate. 
But in that clip, we were discussing ways in which the Sun-Earth relationship and the changes in that relationship over long periods of time affect the grand scale changes that happen on the, in the Earth's climate, such as the glacial-interglacial oscillations. But what about the much shorter period changes in climate? What about even the supposed 1.6 degrees of warming that have taken place over the last 150 years that the IPCC is hyperventilating about? And, well, there are serious problems with even that the statement about the 1.6 degrees, but... I'll leave you to investigate that for yourself, but even if we were to take it at face value, well, that seems like an incredible amount of warming. Could it possibly be that the Earth's temperature is being driven, even in the small uh, geological timescale, uh, by the sun itself? Well, we don't have to look very hard to find someone who is at least professing that. I'm Piers Corbin from weatheraction.com. And we're going to tell you about our solar lunar amplification magnetic process, uh, the findings of which we first announced in New York on March the 10th this year, 2009. Uh, what this is about is a new understanding of how the moon modulates the rush of particles that come from the sun. So very symbolically... The sun on my right, 93 million miles away, and the earth. And these magnetic connections change with the magnetic cycle of the sun. And that affects how the sun affects the earth, in particular the earth's magnetic field. But also the moon is orbiting around the earth, and that also interrupts the solar wind. And there are very important connections between the phase of the moon's orbit, the plane of the moon's orbit as it goes around, and the magnetic phase of the sun's cycle, the sun's 22-year magnetic cycle. And what we find is that in a certain phase of the moon's rotation of its plane of orbit around the sun, and the magnetic cycle of the sun, we get better connections and you get warming and generally speaking this warming happens uh, in a lunar period defined by having uh, sol solar eclipses um, around the uh, early part of December and uh, uh, the sun being in its odd cycle just after its maximum and at those times when those coincidences are closest, we get the highest temperatures. So here, solar cycle 13, the 23, a big one. Solar cycle 17, a big one. Solar cycle 11, a big one. And the spacing between those is about 60 years. And there are sub-cycles as well, where the connections are not so good, and they are weaker peaks. The average period of this general cycle, the overwhelming envelope cycle, is about 60 years. And that is, the, that is also the driver of what's called the Pacific Decadal Oscillation. The temperature of the Pacific Ocean, the circulation of the Pacific Ocean, goes in an overall variation of 60 years, which is why the temperature of the USA, the biggest cyclical change in temperatures in the USA is 60 years. So understanding the basic 
parameters which describe this cycle is the SLAM process. And of course this leads us to our ability to make long range climate forecasts. Namely this super peak of a number of things is a super peak which means we're going to have a general decline in overall temperatures a bit like this in reverse for the next century or so which is why we are predicting world cooling although we're also coupling that with the need to understand what the sun itself is going to do in that uh, in the next hundred years which of course is why we work with uh, astrophysicists dealing directly with the sun as well the SLAM is a big advance for weather action uh, and we will be publishing details of it uh, in the near future and we will discuss it further at our special conference on October the 28th this year. If you need further information, please visit our website weatheraction.com or email me peers at weatheraction.com. Thank you. Well, there was uh, quite a lot in there, and I would suggest that you go and watch the video for yourself so you can perhaps uh, see some of the visuals that were included there that, uh, that might help to explain that or describe that a little bit more clearly. But at any rate, that is Piers Corbin of weatheraction.com explaining the solar lunar amplification magnetic process for determining weather patterns over, well, relatively short periods of times, i.e. the period of months and within one year. And uh, that is, of course, much longer than traditional meteorology, which can predict accurately about three to four days in advance, at which point traditional meteorological predictions start to break down. So the question becomes, well, how does this work exactly? Well, from that clip, at least you get the sense that it has to do with the solar cycles and the solar wind carrying charged particles, which affect the magnetic field of the Earth, which affects the jet streams. And the jet streams are, of course, what drive climate patterns on the Earth. And so if we can figure out the Sun-Earth relationship in that respect, then we can understand better what's about to happen in terms of the weather patterns. And then there is the complicating factor of the moon and the way that it interferes with the solar wind and thus affects the changes in the magnetic field of the Earth that are caused by the solar cycles. So again, it's quite a lot of information there and a lot of factors at play. So I'll let you explore that a little bit more fully on the weatheraction.com website so you can start to get a handle on what's involved here. But at any rate, it's quite a large claim to make that uh, someone can predict the weather uh, even as much as a year in advance with any type of accuracy. So how, how, how can this possibly be happening and can this person really be serious when he talks about this? Well, we don't have to look very hard either to find mainstream reputable science dismissing the idea that the sun could possibly be driving the currently observed climate change. The sun has a huge influence on the climate here on Earth, that's undisputed. So could natural variations in solar energy be causing climate change today? A small minority of scientists have claimed for years that increased solar activity and cosmic rays are behind the planet's recent warming, not our greenhouse gas emissions. But new findings appear to prove conclusively that the sun is not to blame. A detailed analysis of solar activity found that it's declined since the mid-1980s. The scientists who carried out the work said it's more evidence that the climate skeptics are wrong. So there always will be some skeptics. 
I think that the results that are coming in now mean that the sceptics will not be, will be listened to even less, and the consensus is, is, is almost overwhelming amongst the scientific community that the sun is not to blame for what is happening to our temperatures. It is actually man-made greenhouse gases. The last decade has seen some of the warmest years on record worldwide, and today's findings will strengthen the scientific consensus that humans are primarily responsible. There is evidence that emissions from the sun may have been the main factor driving climate change in the distant past, but they're dwarfed today by the impact of emissions here on Earth. Christine McGurty, BBC News. Well, an authoritative report from that bastion of information, the British Broadcasting Corporation, on some research that shows and disproves the link between cosmic rays and short-term climatic variation here on Earth. What more could possibly be asked for? Well, I'll even include a link to a BBC article from 2007, No Sun Link to Climate Change, which again goes into great detail about the uh, the study that was published in the Royal Society's journal Proceedings A, and it doesn't get much more prestigious than the Royal Society. And I'll even add in on top of that a link to the ever-reputable IPCC at ipcc.ch, where you can see that from their 2007 report from a figure called Radiative Forcing Components, where they break down all of the different forcing components, the things that drive climate on Earth and rate them in terms of the value, uh, the amount of uh, change that they bring to the climate. And you can see that the IPCC has determined that the total net anthropogenic effect of anthropogenic global gas greenhouse gases, uh, ozone, other water vapor, surface albedo, and other things that are man-made, contribute 13 times more to climate change than does solar irradiance. So it's pretty much a done and dusted case then, isn't it? It's science versus this crackpot Pierce Corbin and people like him who believe that the sun is somehow driving climate. Well, it's been disproven because solar irradiance is not a large radiative, for radiative forcing component and cosmic rays, the, the intensity of cosmic rays do not bear relation to recent trends in temperature. So it's pretty much disproven, right? Well, it's not quite that simple and... For just a couple of complications to that story, I'll throw in some links to climategate.tv. Uh, there's a story from January 25th of 2011 uh, from the Daily Mail. Ex-BBC presenter, BBC became propaganda machine for climate change. Well, big surprise there. We didn't exactly need an insider to tell us that, but it always helps. And then I'll throw in a link to another story from climategate.tv. This one from September 29th of 2010. Royal Society bows to climate change skeptics. Quote, Britain's leading scientific institution has been forced to rewrite its guide to climate change and admit that there is greater uncertainty about future temperature increases than it had previously suggested. End quote. Again, no real surprise there to people who have been following this issue, but... As we've seen with the really tectonic shift in the argument that's come since uh, ClimateGate, and well, there's been a lot of uh, people turning on the anthropogenic global warming bandwagon as it begins to fall apart, because people want to get off that ride before it does completely fall apart and, and kill everyone who's on board. Well, uh, there, those are just a couple of ways to complicate the, the reports, the conclusive reports from the Royal Society that are faithfully broadcast by the BBC about how there is no real link between cosmic rays and 
climate? Well, it's obviously a little bit more complicated than that, and I think from at least what little we heard from Pierce Corbin, it does seem to be a much more complicated process than just simply counting the amount of photons per second that are being shot up, shot out by the sun. There's There's more subtlety to it than that. So let's see if this actually plays out in the real world. Uh, what, for for instance, is the predictive power of some standard meteorology, like, say, the UK Met Office, versus Piers Corbin? Well, let's take a look at some specific examples. What, for example, did the UK Met Office say about the 2009-2010 winter, and what did Piers Corbin say, and who ended up being right? Well, let's listen to a uh, forecast that Piers Corbin issued in July of 2009, in which Piers Corbin describes what things will be like in the 2009-2010 winter in the UK. Hello, I'm Piers Corbin from weatheraction.com, long-range weather and climate forecasters. And today I'm going to give you a headline summary for the winter forecast of 2009-2010, which we produced in July this year. Now, you may have heard that the Met Office have put out a uh, summary forecast, which they produced uh, uh, late September, where they say preliminary indications suggest uh, the winter temperatures are likely to be near or above average, and there's only a one in seven chance of a cold winter. Now, when you hear these type of forecasts, I think you have to ask yourself, what is their track record of success? The answer to that is the Met Office's track record of success in... uh, the significant uh, seasons of the last few years which have deviated a lot from normal is a failure rate of four out of four. For 2007 they predicted a sizzling summer, there were floods, floods and floods. For 2008-2009 summers they predicted warm, dry, sunny, barbecue summers, global warming, happiness summers, whatever. They were wrong again. For the winter of 0809, they said again it would be mild. And we said no, it won't be. They were wrong. Now, we were correct in four out of those four uh, uh, extreme seasons mentioned. And they will be wrong again for the winter of 09010. Our forecast shows it's very likely to be generally cold, or even very cold, um, in Britain and in Ireland, and uh, we will release a lot more of the details at uh, our special conference on October the 28th. And we're 85% confident it will be a cold winter, and there is going to be some very cold spells, and also some snowy and some stormy spells, which we will. Uh, detail. Already some of the details have been released to our customers. Uh, the conference uh, we're having on October the 28th is going to be held in Imperial College and it's entitled Climate Change, the Solar Weather Technique uh, and the Future of Forecasting. Alright, fair enough. So the UK Met Office often gets their predictions wrong and Weather Action often gets their predictions right. But how about the 2009-2010 winter? Did Piers Corbin's predictions check out? Southwest of London, the town of Basingstoke might look like a winter wonderland. But a white Christmas is proving more of a nightmare than a dream. 
cars remain abandoned, buried under snow. Some try to dig them out to no avail. Trucks throwing salt on the roads are struggling to keep up with demand, leaving many areas no-go zones. It was just an absolute gridlock. Um, I thought I'd get my car home. Obviously got it as, as far as here. Stranded drivers have been forced to spend the night in hotels and pubs. The cold weather also continues to test the country's transport system. Trains between Britain and Europe are now moving again, but timetables are still in chaos. All right, score one for peers. Well, how about 2010-2011? What was the prediction? The winter, December to February, inclusive in Britain and Europe, will be exceptionally cold and snowy, like hell frozen over at times, with much of England, Germany, Benelux and northern France suffering one of the coldest winters for over a hundred years, with probably two of the months, December, uh, January or February, uh, likely to being in the three coldest for a hundred years. Hmm, interesting. Well, for those who can cast their mind back to the last few months, you might well remember how those months played out in terms of weather, but let's just put it on the record. How did the 2010-2011 winter turn out? Our next guest told, said he, he can clearly say, I told you so. Back in November, the UK's government weather forecasting office claimed that this winter would be mild. That's the same office pushing a global warming agenda. But here's the forecast for this winter, as predicted in November by astrophysicist and meteorologist Piers Corbin. Take a listen. The winter, December to February, inclusive in Britain and Europe, will be exceptionally cold and snowy, like hell frozen over at times. <laughs> he was right. It feels like that outside right now. You're looking at video of an extremely snowy Britain from this week. So much for global warming. He says prepare for the ice age. Piers Corbin joins us now. Piers, how did you pull this off? How did you manage to be so accurate when everyone else in that office was saying, uh-uh, it's not going to happen? Well, uh... The uh, science, so-called, of these uh, scientists you referred to is failed science based on fraudulent data. We understand that the, the, it's the sun, solar particle and magnetic effects which control uh, Earth's weather and climate. And we're able to predict this a long time ahead. So we predicted that this December would be the coldest for uh, 100 years, which it has been, as it's shown on this. And we also predicted uh, uh, on the 12th of December that Northeast and East USA would suffer the most horrendous blizzards for decades. And we actually put out a tweet saying, you ain't seen nothing yet. Now, yeah, now in fact, we haven't seen anything yet. And because you now are predicting that there is global cooling taking place. Yes. And that seems yes. to fly in the face of what we're hearing at large. In fact, today in the New York Times, a piece about the trend of global warming. And their argument is from scientists, they say that because we're seeing global warming, that's why we're seeing such weather extremes. Do you buy that science? <laughs> No, it is complete nonsense. It's fiction. It it's, comes from a cult ideology. There's no science in there, no facts to back them up. Historically, 
The only correlation between carbon dioxide and temperatures over millions of years is that world temperatures drive carbon dioxide levels, not the other way around. What they have is they fiddle the facts in order to justify uh, political attacks, carbon trading, extra taxation uh, on, on the public. But, but, but Piers, you know, the critics would stopped. say, well, wait a second. They'd say, hold on a second, Piers. They're saying we're seeing global ice, uh, ice sheets melting. We're seeing the Arctic Circle being opened up in such a way that Russia now laying claim to certain <laughs> land up there that never well, before yeah. we, we have ships going up there. What do you say to them? Well, fine. The ships have been up there before. It's, it's all happened before. And in fact, it is now uh, closing up again in the Arctic. And the Antarctic has been cooling for the last 30 years. We are just past the peak of a world temperature uh, uh, rise. Uh, and we are now falling. And it's going to carry on falling in general for the next 25 years. And all these major extreme events around the world, the biggest ones, such as the heat wave in Russia and the floods in, and the ending of the heat wave in Russia and the ending of the floods in Pakistan, were predicted by us using our solar uh, magnetic uh, theory, uh, which you can find out more of on weatheraction.com, our website. Well, okay, a couple of lucky hits for the plucky upstarts at weatheraction.com, but it can't not be the case that they're right while the Met Office is wrong. It must be something else, right? Well, for those who would like even more examples of how Pierce Corbin and weatheraction.com have been right much more often than they've been wrong with extremely, extremely accurate and extremely specific predictions about extremely specific weather events over the past several years, I direct you to weatheraction.com where you can click on forecast accuracy and get audited reports by independent uh, third parties that have uh, taken a look at the weather action newsletters and, and rated whether or not the predictions came true. So uh, you can take a look at that and see some of the stunning successes that they've had predicting very, very specific things. Predicting weeks in advance to the day ice storms that happened in northeast USA, uh, a tropical cyclone that developed in the South Indian Ocean, a typhoon east of the Philippines, etc., etc., etc. Very, very specific predictions that came true. And again, this is not a small matter. It's actually quite a large matter and one that the Met Office itself knows about because it has come under fire consistently and repeatedly over the last several years for continuing to worm about barbecue summers and above-average weather when, again, cold weather seems to be sinking in. And eventually, well, this happened on... March 5th, 2010, Sky News reports, quote, Under fire, Met Office scraps seasonal forecast. The Met Office is scrapping its seasonal weather forecasts after failing to predict Britain's coldest winter in 31 years. The organization said it would in instead focus on its monthly predictions updated on a weekly basis. Met weather forecasters were widely criticized after predicting in the autumn that Britain had a 1 in 5 chance of suffering a cold winter. Much of the country was blanketed by snow in December and January, while figures showed the mean UK temperature was just 1.5 Celsius for the entire winter, the lowest since 1978-79. Predictions of a barbecue summer also ended with a washout, leaving many stay-at-home holidaymakers holiday makers frustrated by the inaccurate forecast. End quote. And again, although they have stopped their seasonal forecasts for the public of course they are still doing forecasts for government because government does need to have some sort of idea of what type of winter or summer is ahead so that they can pre prepare the various things that need to be prepared in their cities and towns 
to prepare for cold weather or snow or those types of events. But again, it's extremely important that they have accurate forecasts. So the Met Office has consistently come under fire for failing to provide accurate forecasts to the government, which is exactly why this is another very, very significant event. In December of 2010, this article appeared in Telegraph, the man who repeatedly beats the Met Office at its own game. Pierce Corbin not only predicted the current weather, but he believes things are going to get much worse, says Boris Johnson. Why did the Met Office forecast a mild winter? Do you remember? They said it would be mild and damp, and between one degree and one and a half degrees warmer than average. Well, I am now 46, and that means I have seen more winters than most people on this planet, and I can tell you that this one is a corker. Never mind the record low attained in Northern Ireland this weekend. I can't remember a time when so much snow has lain so thickly on the ground, and we haven't even reached Christmas. And this is the third tough winter in a row. Is it really true that no one saw this coming? Actually, they did. Allow me to introduce readers to Piers Corbin, meteorologist and brother of my old chum, bearded lefty MP Jeremy. Piers Corbin works in an undistinguished office in Borough High Street. He has no telescope or supercomputer, armed only with a laptop, huge quantities of publicly available data, and a first-class degree in astrophysics. He gets it right again and again. Back in November, when the Met Office was still doing its mild winter shtick, Corbin said it would be the coldest for 100 years. Indeed, it was back in May that he first predicted a snowy December, and he put his own money on a white Christmas about a month before the Met Office made any such forecast. He said that the Met Office would be wrong about last year's mythical barbecue summer, and he was vindicated. He was closer, closer to the truth about last winter, too. He seems to get it right about 85% of the time, and serious business people, notably in farming, are starting to invest in his forecasts. In the eyes of many punters, he puts the taxpayer-funded Met Office to shame. How on earth does he do it? He studies the sun. He looks at the flow of particles from the sun and how they interact with the upper atmosphere, especially air currents such as the jet, jet stream, and he looks at how the moon and other factors influence those streaming particles. He takes a snapshot of what the sun is doing at any given moment, and then he looks back at the record to see when it last did something similar. Then he checks what the weather was like on Earth at that time, and he makes a prophecy. I have not a clue whether his methods are sound or not, but when so many of his forecasts seem to come true, and when he seems to be so consistently ahead of the Met Office, I feel I want to know more. Piers Corbin believes that the last three winters could be the harbinger of a mini ice age that could be upon us by 2035, and that it could start to be colder than at any time in the last 200 years. He goes on to speculate that a genuine ice age might then settle in, since an ice age is now cyclically overdue. End quote. Well, a very interesting article written by Boris Johnson, the mayor of London. Yes, indeed, Piers Corbin is definitely touching the zeitgeist and is definitely getting the accolades now after he has been so consistently right while the Met Office has been so consistently wrong. And people are starting to look at the ridiculous conspiracy-minded notion that it is the sun that is the main driver of our climate. I'd like to draw this episode to a close by trying to put this issue in perspective, because I think it's extremely important to understand why it is so important that we clarify and try to combat the myth of anthropogenic global warming as it is being propounded by the people who stand to benefit from the hysteria they are creating. 
We have, of course, talked about the financial interests of the people who are promoting this myth before, and it is no surprise that millionaires like the Gores or billionaires like George Soros or trillionaires like the Rothschilds are so heavily into promoting this myth and the idea that people must pay taxes that will ultimately end up in their pockets or create international governmental institutions that will ultimately be under their control in order to combat this problem. But again, it's important to understand that there are even other ways in which this hysteria can be used in very, very chilling ways to not just manipulate the economy, and not just to manipulate human society, but to manipulate the earth itself. And that was brought into sharp focus for me when I saw this uh, article from National Geographic from February 22, 2011. Small nuclear war could reverse global warming for years. Regional war could spark unprecedented climate change, experts predict. I'll let you read that article for yourself, and of course the link will be in the documentation section for this episode, but I think it's extremely important to note why this study was even done in the first place, because as What's Up With That, Anthony Watts notes in his take on this article, what, on, what is the point of this when we already have a very established idea of nuclear winter? This is not anything that is in any type of scientific dispute that there would be the nuclear winter that would be the inevitable fallout, literally nuclear fallout, of a nuclear war. So why on earth is NASA releasing new studies showing that nuclear war would cause global cooling? Well, I see this as part of the agenda to keep the idea of geoengineering on the front burner and to keep the idea in people's minds that drastic, perhaps even unthinkable things can and perhaps should be employed in order to control the Earth's climate and to stop this runaway global warming. Well, this of course plays into geoengineering, which we've talked about in the past on this podcast and will talk about in the future. But at any rate, for now, let's just try to examine the possibility that it is the sun that is the main driver of our climate and is the driving force behind climate change and will continue to be so. And let us combat the climate change hysteria, which unfortunately still has so much of the public in its grip. That's it for this week. I am your host, James Corbett, asking you to join me again next week for another edition of The Corbett Report. Here comes the sun, Here comes the sun, I say, it's alright.